Hello and welcome to another episode of Wolf Disney. I'm Sarah. And I'm Natalie. And we are the Sisters Wolf. And we are, uh, we have very little Disney uh, exposure or knowledge. And we are slowly making our way through the Disney catalog movie by movie in chronological order. Now that I say this, I feel like I did this last week, but it's fine. Um, I'll do the intro again this week. Natalie, what's our movie this week? Uh, the Sword and the Stone. As a kid, I think I thought it was The Sword and the Stone. Uh-huh. I realized that yesterday when I Googled the movie that it's <laughs> The Sword and the Stone, which makes, I mean, either one really, I think, gets the point across. Both things are involved. Sword, stone, some kind of connection word. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we're doing The Sword in the Stone. 1963. Our parents were born. I mean, they were alive. They were alive, yeah. Are we going to do that for all the episodes now? Because they'll continue to be... Born. Born. Um, and today we have um, my uh, our colleague, um, colleague in ministry, uh, <laughs> my, my friend, uh, Joshua, Josh Woodsmith. Hey, what's up? Um, he uh, is one of our um, first loyal listeners. Um, he knew about this idea before it started. Um, when I first met Josh, he was about to propose to his now wife. And um, at that point in time, I didn't fully trust adults who like Disney um, in any range of passion. For- I know this story. Yeah. Okay. This is Josh. That's me. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, and he <laughs> told our friend group about how he was going to propose and it involved um, this very beautiful uh, wooden box from Pocahontas. It's uh, the compass that John Smith gives to Pocahontas. And I just made a wooden version of it. It doesn't work as a compass because it's made of wood. Sure. Uh, but I just decided to make it like a locket. And then I realized, oh, this is big enough to hold a ring. <laughs> and so it became the ring box yes. with which I propose. Yeah. So he told that idea and everybody was super enthused and I just had to stay quiet because I was like I don't know this person well enough I don't know if I can trust this um and I'm here to report that both Josh and Jesse are trustworthy people and have forced me to give Disney and its adults a chance um yeah as well you should yes um so Josh is a big Disney fan and we're bringing him on um this episode because um well, Sarah and I are unenthused by this movie, The Sword in the Stone. Um, I watched it and don't remember any of it. Like, I could have... I feel like even the movies that I've hated so far, the next day I wake up and, like, think about it a little bit. Like, and this one, I don't... I have no recollection of it besides sitting on a couch for an hour and 20 minutes. I texted Natalie and said, why is this movie? Yeah. Oh. So sad. It's such a good movie. <laughs> it is. Um, Josh, before we get in there, our guest icebreaker, as the strong tradition goes, um, is for you to spell your name um, using characters. And we'd like you to do Joshua, not Josh. I can do that. Um, okay. Uh, Jafar. Oh, crap. Oh, was a harder one. Um mm. Can I like skip and come back to letters? Or sure. Be wrong? Okay, I'm gonna skip over for a second. Uh, 
S. Uh, we can go with Sir Hiss from Robin Hood. Okay. <laughs> He's an excellent character. You'll get to him in a little bit. Okay. Um, let's see. Like, I'm sorry, circus, like where the No, Sir Sir Hiss. Oh. As in as in a knight and the sound that a snake makes. He is a I snake. Thought, I thought you said circus, like where you go like the, the big top and whatever. And I was like that would be spelled with a C usually. Oh, That's I thought what I was questioning. I thought I was gonna be a cat. No, no. Sir Hiss is a snake who uh, who works as the right hand man of King John, who is a lion. Okay, that's another J one. That's true. I could have gone with John. He's kind of a he's not a very good character. I mean, neither is Jafar, but John right. is a wimp. Uh, okay, H. I could go with Sir Hiss again, but um, I won't do that. Uh, I did not plan this ahead, and I should have because I remember that this was a thing that y'all do. You is Ursula. An A is Ariel, um, or Ariel, if you want to be Sebastian about it. Okay. Um, sorry, it's just you're thinking, you're That's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to make right. Sebastian S, and Hiss is H. Fix that. And O, I Sir and Hiss. Well, I guess I could just do that. Yeah, but Sebastian can get in there. Now I've used a lot of Little Mermaid characters, which is fun. Yeah. And I still don't have O. This is hard. Is there an Oscar? probably somewhere uh, um, oliver oliver oh, yes of course oliver and company delightful how could i forget oliver i haven't seen the movie that's a I disney movie that's a disney movie from 1988 it, like it is no. a, a lot of disney movies are musicals natalie no, oh no no natalie you're thinking of oliver the orphan the mark the uh uh charles dickens story yeah so what's oliver and company that's oliver, oliver and company, company is based on that cat. Yeah, oh, it's based really? on Oliver Twist, but it's oh. Oliver Twist with cats and dogs. I'm excited to watch that. Billy Joel voices Dodger, the artful Dodger, huh. a uh, lovable, like, border collie-looking dog. This is also why we brought Josh in the podcast, is he can really spend some time with his Wikipedia brain. Um, it's it's well, very helpful. I like Disney movies a lot. It's, uh, it's an illness. <laughs> Anyways, I did my name. You did it? Yep, it's finished. Out of order, but it's done. Good. Um, well, I think the ice has broken. Um, so the movie The Sword and the Stone came out in 1963. I did no research about it, but it is based on a book. Um, it's a cartoon. Um, it's our first cartoon in a while. Wait, did we just watch a cartoon? We watched 101 Dalmatians. Okay, just kidding. It was not the first cartoon in a while. Um, but it did feel different as far as animation style. But I didn't research that once again because I did not. It felt, I felt very Cinderella-y. Oh, it felt oh, very no, no. Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Like with the backgrounds and um, just things not very well done. Yeah. Um, and I guess uh, 101 Dalmatians E2. One thing y'all pointed out last week, the 101 Dalmatians introduced the like copying as a tactic in animation. And that's how they were able to do all the dots and stuff. And then and you also commented on how that's where some of the animation started to kind of drop off in other places. Um, just the quality of it got worse. And you can see that Sword in the Stone going through about Robin Hood you just see a lot more like recycling of past animation. Once you get to Robin Hood, just 
look out for scenes that look like they've just been straight up stolen from past Disney movies and you will see a ton. Um, there are so many from like Lady and the Tramp, Snow White, uh, Cinderella, Sword in the Stone, Jungle Book, a lot from Jungle Book. Robin Hood, like m probably 30% of that movie is reused animation. Huh. And voice, voice actors too. They used a lot of voice actors who were common at the time. Gotcha. I'm gonna say from just like a um, a precursor. Uh, disclaimer. Disclaimer. That's what I was looking for. Uh, that uh, in my head, um, Robin Hood and the Sword in the Stone are the same movie because they are related stories. So throughout this podcast, I will be confused. So, so now I'm confused. They are related stories. Oh, yes, because I did research. Okay. Um, yeah, so they're like the same story in my head. Um, so when you said that this movie up until Robin Hood or something like that, I was like, this is the same movie. <laughs> that, you yeah. out within the movie, you'll see this. <laughs> that the time frame is separated by about 500 years, but other than that. No, no it's, I mean, well, so in the- More in than the, 500, actually. The book, so the book by, the book- Here's some of my research. The book was written by T.H. White and published in 1938. Um, and he did his, um, his like master's thesis or something on a book called, wait a minute, sorry, I should have done this first. Um, Is it to E.B. White? No. I don't think so, no. Um, so he, um, yeah, he did his thesis on this book called Le Mort d'Art which was published in 1485 Thomas um, Mallory mm -hmm, which is about the legends of King Arthur Guinevere and Lancelot and all of that and the sword in the stone is then this imagining by T.H. White of what Arthur's childhood was like and all of that stuff um, but in that and it was published twice with the one second time with a different ending but in the first one um, he does have like a side trip where he meets Robin Hood in the woods he and Merlin do that's right. Um, so, so T.H. White did some, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. I read this book in like the ninth grade or 10th grade for part of school. Um, oh, I think really? It was like one of the options you could choose for summer reading or something. Um, and I still have it on my bookshelf, but. It was listed um, on Time Magazine's top 100 young adult books. So young adult novels. Really, so. yeah. It's a really good book. I mean, it, it, it's, it's essentially four books in one. Um, it's the sword in the stone is Arthur's childhood and it covers exactly what the movie covers um, from beginning to end. It ends exactly when the movie ends. It very much feels like a cliffhanger in the same way the movie does. And then the next three parts are Arthur as a young King, who's like trying to get his kingdom under control. And then Arthur as a successful guy, the guy who runs the round table and sends his knight out on errands. And the fourth part is combination uh, Holy grail quest and Arthur being uh, betrayed by his either like illegitimate son or nephew. It, there's some weird incesty things that happen uh, just because Arthur's story has gone through a whole lot of uh, permutations over the centuries hmm. before T.H. White got to it. Yeah, I mean, it's if you like, I just Googled King Arthur just to read up on on that person character you know there's we're not even sure if that's a real person yeah that's how this conversation started last night that introduced josh to coming on this podcast episode 
is because I asked, I thought to ask is, was King Arthur a real person or not? Yeah. Um, they're, that's they're been a, very unclear. Yeah. There's like two teams uh, where some say, yeah, definitely. Um, and some say, okay, not. Um, so uh, yeah. But um, King Arthur would, would have been alive in the fifth century. Um, fifth and sixth centuries around then, which I guess, <laughs> uh, at one point in the movie, Merlin says, uh, when when that guy comes from London, he's like, news from London. And Merlin's like, can't wait for the, for the London Times to come out. And he like looks at his watch and he's like, oh, that's not going to come out for 1200 years. So I like Googled when the London Times started and that's like in 1789. So that's good math. <laughs> it was accurate. Good job, Merlin. Yeah. I do. That was one of the few comical like relief bits that i appreciated in the movie like, if, I had to, if i had to pull something out that i liked from my i do like all of his like allusions to mm-hmm. um and like the like he just like kind of uses it in like a like a troll kind of way of just like it's like kind of condescending to everybody around him um because he has this knowledge i liked that but in there are some i don't think it's white who introduced this but some versions of the arthur tale and especially as people have like made kind of merlin spinoff stuff um they've there's this kind of two camps of one merlin like if there was a historical merlin then he would have been a druid a a celtic kind of religious priestly figure um nature uh, guy who would have done like nature rituals to appease the fairies that sort of thing um and then there's this other much more bonkers like very celtic irish thing of he is like the son of a fairy and a demon or a human woman and the devil or a fairy. Like he's, he's some, somehow supernatural. And because of that, he ages backwards. And so he was born at like the end of time and he's just immortal and he just continues going. Uh, or he like lived a full life and then now he's living it backwards again. And that so- would, That would suck to like be eternal, but like start your life at the end of times and then have to like give up nice things. Yeah. Like one day you have indoor plumbing and the next day they're like, no, we don't have that anymore. Yeah, Go it's ahead. it's a, it's a like, no one has quite dis- decided how Merlin should be treated. And so you have a whole lot of different authors um, and, and movie runners and show runners all treating in very different ways. Um, for some, he's like this political mastermind. For others, he is this kooky Gandalf figure. Um, and, and that's kind of the, yeah, the two major images I think that now dominate is like, ah, the political like guy behind the scenes and crazy man with a beard who has no idea what's going on. Um, the very Harry Potter wizard kind of thing. Well, that's JK Rowling said that she based Dumbledore a little bit off of Merlin in mm-hmm. The Sword and the Stone. Um, oh. So, yeah, and that's he's the, the long beard and the and he's kind of a goof, right? In in Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. Dumbledore is very much a just a quirky old man who also plays very smart political power games, and so mm-hmm. um, she does a good job of capturing all the aspects of Merlin and recreating this new character. But, but not the annoying aspects of Merlin because he got <laughs> my nerves in the movie a little bit. He does. Um, yeah, he and Archimedes are an excellent comedic duo, and I, I love loved them. I loved Archimedes. It's a very Abbott, Abbott and Costello sort of vibe. Yeah. And I think that's because that like, there were comedic stand-up comedy duos around in the US at the time. Um, Natalie, what do you, what is your face? 
Well, I only know who Archimedes is. Oh, the owl. It's the, owl. the owl. Sorry, I forgot that the owl was there. I watched this two nights ago, and I could have. You might might as well have happened three years ago. Um, I forgot that the owl happened. I also you said something about Abbott and Costello, and that also lost me. And so there's a lot happening. Not a character in the movie. Yeah, I know no. that. Okay. Um, <laughs> sir, do you have anything? Are you? Do you have anything else? Yeah. So, you know, going back to, we kind of started talking about, um, um, sorry. Natalie hates me. Clicking, clicking, clicking. Um, about the production quality of, of the movie. Um, in uh, our friend Mary Ness wrote an article about the Sword in the Stone, and um, and she talks about. So we you talked about like uh, scene repetition within like the Disney movies, but actually in this movie they repeat several scenes several times. So like the scene of Kay, the 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 knight in training, Natalie, the big dumb guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he is several times in one scene seen polishing off like a chicken bone or whatever a bone of meat. And throwing it like that's just the same scene repeated three times like every time it cuts to him they just like kept replaying that scene and so Mary Ness was like if that looked familiar it's because you'd already seen it three other times within the same movie um so they were still trying to like um save money and, and cut some corners there um but um the other thing and I totally picked up on this and I'm really proud of myself for doing that um was the voice for Arthur for Wart. First of all, he has an American accent and everybody else has a British accent. So that was weird. But then also three different characters voiced Arthur in this movie. Um, Cause I like, sometimes he would sound like a kid and sometimes he had more of like a teenage boy, like just having gone through puberty voice. Like it's not like settled in yet. Um, I was like, what is going on with this voice? So um, yeah, she said three, three different actors voiced him. Two of the actors were brothers. And so they sounded similar. So those brothers were the sons of the director. Because hmm. I saw their names pop up on the characters at the beginning credits. And it was like Richard and Robert Reitherman or something. And I was like, well, that's obviously they're related because that's quite a name. Um, but then on like the very last credit it says directed by Wolfgang Reitherman. And I was like, oh, they have to be related. So he got his sons to play um, Arthur. Um, so when they, I think they must be the boys the, when he sounds more like a child. Um, and then there's like a random adult. Um, so I would say that Mary Ness also had the same kind of reaction that Natalie and I had to this movie. Um, and I think that her points are valid. Um, she just says, she, I mean, the title of, of her um, article for this movie is In Need of a Villain. Because like, what is the plot of this movie? You know, like, you know, and she, and she compares it to Cinderella and like with Cinderella, you know how it's gonna end. Like she's gonna end up with the prince. Um, it was a story that was well, enough known just through fairy tales and um you know every culture has some version of cinderella and that kind of stuff 
Um, and so Disney has this problem with movies like that where you know the ending. Um, like, how are you going to get there and keep it interesting? How are you going to get there and keep suspense building? Because you already know it's going to happen. Well, in Cinderella, they do that by um, establishing Cinderella as a sympathetic character. And you start to really feel for her and like her, how she's abused by her stepsisters and her stepmother. And, and then and then they write the mice in to help with some, some suspense building and that kind of stuff. Um, and Mary Ness's argument is that is pretty much non-existent in this movie. Like at no point, like you, you don't really develop any emotional attachment to Arthur. No. Um, you're just like, I don't really understand what's going on here. I know eventually this kid will, will probably pull a sword from a stone. I don't really know what Merlin's doing with him. I, yeah. Um, you said that you knew the ending to Cinderella. I didn't know the ending to this movie because I thought it began with him pulling a sword out of a stone. And when I realized I was going to have to wait until minute 73 for that to happen. Ugh. Not a fan. No. It felt like, um, I, was, felt like I was watching a, a bad version of uh, Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were a lot of just like random, but the thing that was interesting though, like, you know, the fish scene, the squirrel, the weird squirrel scene, like weird relationship dynamics. <laughs> I thought about researching the courtship of squirrels, but I decided I didn't want to do that. Um, and then the bird scene, I was like, these are really weird. And then, but then when I did my research on the author, those were in the book. <laughs> like he yeah. did imagine like that was the kind of education that Merlin provided for um, Arthur. But um, uh, Marianne is talking about Arthur and how he's not like a sympathetic character. She says, Wart is even less enthusiastic about everything except for going to London making him about the only Disney protagonist so far to A, not have a clear, desirable goal to begin with, whatever that goal is. And then in parentheses, she goes through like all of the Disney cartoon movies as goals. So stay alive, turn into a real boy, escape bullies slash learn to fly, stay alive, get married, get home, have adventures, stay alive, save a number of adorable little puppies and so on. And B, to only sort of get his goal. <laughs> He's the only Disney protagonist to only sort of get his goal. He does find a place in the world, which is something that we learned that he wanted in the last 10 minutes of the film. Like in the last 10 minutes, he's having this random like side conversation. And you're like, oh, this is why he wants to be a squire because he can't be a knight because he's an orphan. Like he's, he's totally reliant on people taking a chance on him and like welcoming him in that kind of stuff. Like you don't really understand why he wants to do any of this stuff. You don't learn that until the last 10 minutes. Then um, she says, that's something the film could have explored, but they didn't. Um, and she says, above all, the Sword in the Stone showcases how much the Disney films, with very few exceptions, depend upon their villains. Um, she talks about the Madame Mim thing, which was in the original book. Madame Mim was, was in the original book. I thought it was just like a random character where they were like, we got we to gotta fill eight minutes. So... Yeah. Let's, let's have a rival witch wizard. Um, but no, she was in there. So it's just kind of a boring movie, I think, without. Um, Gosh, I hope you have like a list of everything you're going to um, 
come at us with of all the claims we've made so far um, in your I will also say this one, this one thing. This, this filled me with a little bit of dread, this statement from Mary Ness. She says, Sword in the Stone is a minor forgettable film in Disney's more storied animation history, noted, if anything, for being the first in a long line of largely forgettable Disney films, which just fills me with dread for like the next 10 episodes of Walt yeah. Disney. So that's Mary Ness's take. Okay. Yeah, it does definitely mark the beginning of kind of an era of animated Disney films. Um, and I, what's weird is like, this is 63 and um, you see a few like Disney films that I think are just very much in the cultural imagination. Peter Pan um, is one of those, it's gonna be coming. Um, and a few others that like people know about and are familiar with, um, uh, Jungle Book is a big one that's I think coming up either next or in two more movies um, and like but other than those two it's really just sort of oh yeah those are movies that came out those are movies that exist until like the rescuers uh, and then the little mermaid is the start of the Disney renaissance and that's like the biggest uh, most successful mood or, or era of Disney um, from from about Little Mermaid to Tarzan. And then they kind of went back into a slump as Pixar sort of took over. Um, and then wow. DreamWorks took over for a short time. Uh, and now Disney's back on top because they bought Pixar and like the two of them are collaborating. And so Disney's, uh, Disney has been able to improve their storytelling with the, like uh, having bought Pixar and taken on a lot of Pixar staff. And Pixar can now make big budget movies. Like, you know, think about Coco, the, the lighting scenes in that movie and just the amount of like big budget voice acting that they were able to put. That's not something that Pixar had access to before in the same ways. Um, so yeah, this is definitely the beginning of a like minor, yeah, kind of forgettable era for Disney. Um, and it's also them trying to figure out what types of stories they want to make. Um, like this, the sword in the stone is, you know, it, it's childhood, Arthurian legend, which should be really interesting, except T.H. White was a very philosophical kind of author. And so the sword in the stone is, um, as you know, the, the first part of Once and Future King really does read more like a series of short stories that are meant to teach lessons to children about what it means to be a leader and what you mm -hmm. can learn from kind of watching in it, living in the natural world. So there's, I mean, there's entire chunks that got left out of the movie like uh, there's a bit in the book where he gets turned into an ant and he learns about warfare from ants and he learns about like how you know communication almost radio communication uh, because ants use pheromones in a similar way to how humans use radio which is not a thing that uh, I would have thought of in 1930 but apparently T.H. White was like well you know the great war just happened uh, this is a thing that's relevant and so um, that too that he's writing in the 30s with the World War One has just ended. The Great Depression is like in full swing. Um, he's got all of that kind of rocking around the back of his brain. And England is still reeling from the effects of the war. And so he's like, okay, well, what the world needs is a hero, a good old British hero. And they rewrote, he brought Arthur back and wrote it. And so Sword and Stone 
could be a really interesting like Arthurian legend for Disney. There's a lot of action. There's a lot, but they, they focused on the growing up part, which is the part that should appeal to kids, but they just weren't how, weren't sure how to turn a whole bunch of like philosophical life lesson uh, yeah. short stories into a cohesive movie. Cause there's not a villain uh, really until you get to part four is when Mordred becomes this big villain in the book. Um, and that's the fourth book. It's like, the you know the last quarter of this 700 page book or something um 500 page book maybe and so yeah a lot of the stuff that y'all are saying like this is all very valid um it is kind of forgettable it is kind of like what what are we supposed to be gathering here and you're not you're just supposed to be like going on a journey with a boy who's learning all the lessons that he will later use to become king learning um from a fish that you like you know living in 3d space and learning to be very uh, aware of your surroundings and that's going to be a thing that helps him when he is aware of like the location his social location the location of all the knights uh, as they fight as the british fight against the anglo-saxons um all of that's happening and when he learns from the squirrels about love like love plays a really big part in arthur's life later when he falls in love with guinevere who then falls in love with lancelot and he gets betrayed by lancelot like there's all of this very heady medieval stuff that th white is trying to pack into his book and that disney was like well we gotta we gotta you know pay pay homage to it the um, most boring part it i don't know i i always really loved it um but also like i think it's something that appealed like i was a i grew up as a boy who liked to play in the woods and loved to watch kratz creatures which was a tv show all about like men watching animals and teaching you about how animals live. And so yeah. this, this movie very much appealed to my like nature boy sensibilities and my, like I was a philosophy major in college. It appealed to that. It's very philosophical. Uh, and all my friends who really love this movie are also philosophy and like English lit majors. And so I think it does, it appeals to a very certain particular class of people who just like really want to swim in the waters of philosophical medieval, uh, what's the word I want here? conversations i guess and like growing up uh life lessons all of that so yeah none of the things that you guys said are this is why this is a bad movie are wrong um okay. i just think okay. it's why i it's partly why i like it um and so yeah there's not a villain there's not like a a through line plot it's it's just kind of a series of short stories uh describing a boy's growing up and learning lessons and that's I don't know in some way it's true to life uh like there's not in your life you're not going to have like ah oh, this is the villain with whom i'm going to battle uh throughout life but it also doesn't make yeah. for a super interesting movie so um okay that's that's a helpful explanation i i think i yeah i think it's just and i i only did very little research on the making of the movie. I did no research. I skimmed to the Wikipedia page. Um, and I guess I just like, I'm almost surprised. Maybe like this wasn't a concept in the sixties. I'm almost surprised knowing that it's kind of a, a four part series already that they didn't intend on doing a series of movies about this person, um, starting with the sword in the stone. Um, or how does it end like i know i know how it ends like plot wise but like does it just it starts a storybook starting does it end with a storybook 
I don't know if they close the book, but the narrator does come back in and he says, and so the boy became the king and blah, 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 blah. Merlin comes back from Bermuda. Oh yeah, I liked that part. That was my favorite part. That's still one of my favorite parts. I love that (laughs) scene is just classic. Yeah. I just felt bad for Arthur. Like he doesn't want to be king. Like he, you know, pulls the sword out and then like they just abandon him to this empty castle He's sitting on the throne with his um, robe and crown and scepter and all of that. And he's like, I don't, I don't want this. I want, I don't, I just want to be a squire. I don't want to be a king of England. Um, And so then he like goes to each side door and they're like, long live King Arthur. And it's like, you love this guy, but he's like seven and he's not seven, he's probably 12. But um, there's like no, nobody there to tell him like, okay, now you're king. So you need to learn you can't read or write you need to learn English history you need to learn you know courtly procedures and he's just by himself like and then he has Merlin who I don't know that I would trust as an advisor um because Archimedes is the one that really saves him and gets him out of all the trouble every time yeah Um, I don't know sorry well that's fair it's also it's an interesting uh especially for that time, like this is what, 1963. And the movie decides to end with like a reflection on fame, like childhood fame and being hemmed in by admirers. Like I, I could see that being made in the 1990s. Uh, that would be a very relevant thing with all like the emergence of child stars. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't know if that was a thing that people cared about in the 60s. And so it's interesting that that's this like reflection on uh, responsibility being thrust upon people who don't want it um i mean i guess that could that would make more sense in a like immediately post-world one or immediately post-world war two um like where, when the book was written but for the movie it's like well, that's, that is an interesting choice i've never really thought about that why they choose to end it um with that particular outlook well i mean maybe they were thinking about doing a four-part series but i mean it wasn't a very successful movie like when it came out it had a couple of like good weeks, I guess, but then it pretty much dropped off. Maybe they scrapped it. I think too, it was a movie that didn't really have much of an audience. Like when you watch it, you do have to wonder like, okay, who was all this for? Um, yeah. And that's just anytime you can't answer that question that makes it really hard to make a movie. Yeah. I think I would have liked to know, I mean, I, I think those stories are interesting. Not so much him as a child, but the later on stories with Lancelot and everything. But I, w- I would have liked a movie like that, I think. Um, but we'll never know. I'll just watch uh, uh, Monty Python instead and that'll have to fill that void in my life. Fortunately for you, there is so much Arthurian legend-based stuff uh, in the world. You'll, you'll be able to find something to fill the niche. I'm not going to. Go Thank goodness. <laughs> I have too much to read already. <laughs> um, did you do any research, Natalie? I did. What'd you do it on? On Squirt- Squirt- squirrel courtship? No. I did my research on the other sword in the stone. Um that exists in the world. 
it's a little sword we call responsibility. No, uh, <laughs> uh, nah, in in Tuscany there is a sword and a stone. Um, it's the sword and the stone, I think. Um, but a sword and a stone. Yeah, let me see what they call it. No, well, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, no, it says a sword. Okay. Um, in Tuscany, which is in Italy, for those of you who are not world travelers, um, the Abbey of San Galgano, Saint Galgano, um, that's that it exists there in Tuscany. Um, it is a Cistercian monastery, um, which is a Catholic order of monks and nuns, which branched off from the Benedictines um they have an emphasis on manual labor well historically they've had an emphasis on manual labor and self-sufficiency so they're the um some of the monks that are often associated with with agriculture and brewing ales um the trappist monks branched off from this um order um so saint galgano um was uh a man in 1148 to 1181 when he died. Um, he, uh, his mother said that he, in his early adulthood, received two visions, um, both involving Archangel Michael. Um, the first one, Michael told him that he would protect him. Um, and the second one, Mike, yeah, the second one involved um, Galgano following Michael to the hill of Monteseppi, where they met the 12 apostles and God. And um, God. Yep. Well, it said, and the creator, which is interesting. Um, that, I mean, that's cool. That's, I don't know. Anyway. Um, and so that happened. And then um, I guess like the next day he was going to, okay, no. Is, so his horse refused to obey his orders and he led him to the top of Monteseppi, the, the hill that where he saw the apostles um, and God. And he was convinced that it was a sign. And so Galgano decided to plant a cross there on the hill, um, but he had no way to make one out of wood. So he planted his sword in the ground and the sword is said to have immediately become fused with the grounds so that nobody could remove it. One story says that in one of the visions, he was told to renounce material things he, stating that it would be as easy as splitting a rock, decided to make his point by plunging his sword into one. As the legend has it, the sword went through the stone like a knife through butter. Um, so he died in 1181 um, and was canonized They, I, I mean, pretty quickly after his death. And it was the first... Um, saint conducted or canonized with a formal process by the Roman church. Mm. Um, and so this abbey is now um, around like his resting place and where his, because um, he became a hermit, call back to the last episode. I was going to um, say the Trappist monks were hermits. Yeah. A lot so, of them became hermits. Yeah. So the abbey and the sword and the stone are where his hermitage was. Um, the ruins of his hermitage can still be seen while his cloak is kept in the church of Santuccio at Siena. Um, so is there a sword in the stone there? Yeah, so there is still a sword in the stone in the chapel. And in 
20, 2001, um, they did an analysis of the metal because people have said, oh, it's a fake sword or blah, blah, blah. Um, they did an analysis of the metal in 2001 and this expert, uh, which I kind of picture this happening the way it does in uh, Pawn Stars, whenever they get something like, we brought in our friend, a blah, blah, blah expert. And I'm like, who decides that they're an expert on the legitimacy of this one random object? Anyway, um, this expert came in and confirmed that the composition of the metal and the style are compatible with the era of the legend. Um, the analysis also confirmed that the upper piece, the upper piece and the invisible lower one uh are, that you can't see that's yeah, it's just confusing to call that invisible yeah. uh the upper piece and the invisible lower one are authentic and belong to one and the same artifact so the sword is sounds legit uh, has no one are we allowed to try to pull it out if we do do i become queen of italy i don't think so one I don't, that would, I don't think that would go along with this person's story really well okay. as a hermit i don't think they would encourage um if you did able, were able to pull the sword out i think that would be your next step um i don't think that is encouraged it looks there's a picture of it and it looks to be kind of enclosed by like a, a glass kind of bubble situation above it and then there's like bars all around the glass too so i don't think you can touch it um josh do you watch forged on fire uh i occasionally see the videos that come up on my facebook video feed this the story was featured in a season seven episode of forged in fire makes sense they had to recreate excalibur which is but that's the british version what excalibur comes from the arthur legend is that the name of the sword or something is the sword named excalibur or something so there's there's kind of weird threads there's one where arthur pulled a sword from a stone and it made him king and there's another where the lady of the lake gave arthur this unbeatable sword excalibur but in fact it was the scabbard that was unbeatable as long as you were wearing the scabbard you could never be injured and uh the sword was just a normal sword and that's i think it was um the the author you mentioned earlier the french author thomas mallory who um mm-hmm. who created that particular uh like lady giving him a sword out of a water um, thing. And that's mm. that's actually the Monty Python makes fun of that in uh, Monty Python, the Holy Grail. When he says, well, I'm king of all Britons. He's like, what made, what made you queen? Ah, the lady of the lake gave me a sword. <laughs> like <laughs> la- ladies living in water, chucking up swords doesn't make anyone a king. <laughs> oh, I get that now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's two different kind of threads of like, which sword did Arthur have? Where did Excalibur come from? Um, some say, oh, no, it was the sword in the stone. And others say, no, that was a different sword that it, it broke in battle. And so then he was given Excalibur by the Lady of the Lake, who later raised up Lancelot, who would, of course, like almost overthrow him. So, yeah, Thomas Mallory did a lot of throwing in some medieval French, uh, like love poetry, romance poetry into the Arthur story. And that's uh, a lot of the stuff that we know now, Guinevere. Guinevere, Lancelot, Mordred, all that comes from, actually maybe not Mordred, the rest of that all comes from Thomas Mallory. It's not in the original Arthurian legends from like the 600s or 800s, I guess, Geoffrey of Monmouth. So, yeah. Yeah, people, uh, I think I read something that uh, 
I definitely did read something because I didn't come up with it on my own. Um, that um, people believe that the story influenced or in inspired some of the Arthur legend. Um, it is argued. Um, yep. That would make sense too, because a lot of the Christian themes um, in Arthur come from later editions. Um, just it, it, uh, yeah. If there was yeah, a historical is, Arthur, he probably wasn't Christian. It is interesting to note that the first story about Arthur pulling a sword from a stone, or more exactly an anvil on top of the stone, uh, appears in the decades following St. Gaugano's uh, canonization in one of the poems by the Burgundian poet Robert de Boron. And he discovered Boron. <laughs> one of the pure chemical pure elements it's a gaseous element but yeah wow wow i am on quite the website right now <laughs> myarmory.com a resource for historic arms and armor collectors it sounds like something i would actually enjoy on ironically are the throckmortons on there I don't know. That's our family, Josh. According to, according to Disney World, it's our family. Our dad did some. It's time for an Eric Wolf story. We haven't told one of those in a while. Our dad was really into genealogy. <laughs> like, I remember at one point, mom realized how much money he was spending on ancestry.com. And so she made him uh, cancel it, but then he didn't know when his. <laughs> his subscription would run out so it was like i gotta be on it like i just gotta be on it and we we're like why he's end at any time so he was like printing all these stuff but uh he figured out that um we have a family connection in england and it's the throckmortons lord throckmorton and um he was like really excited about it and told our grandma who was like cool dude um and so then we were at Epcot and we went to England at Epcot and you can go into the store there and they will print off your family coat of arms. And so he went and got the Rockmorton uh, coat of arms, but then left his credit card. <laughs> so we had this little British lady chasing us down at Epcot going, Mr. Throckmorton, Mr. Throckmorton, you left your card. <laughs> uh, and we were like, hey, Throckmorton, that lady's calling you. Um, so he got it expensively framed and gave it to our grandmother for Christmas and she put it in the room where my dad sleeps when he comes to visit so she doesn't have to look at it <laughs> and he gets to see it and feel happy. Yeah. That's our English connection. That's an excellent story. <laughs> Do we have anything else that needs to be covered about the sword and the stone? I'm just looking at my notes and it's a lot of me not understanding things. Oh, although, oh man. Uh, when they were doing the wizard's duel, I was thinking about it and I was like, he should become COVID. Like he should, that's a living thing, I think. Yep. Yeah, it's bacteria, it's not a virus. <laughs> no, it's a virus. It's a virus, but viruses are technically, well, sort of alive. Right, they're not really alive. They rely on, anyways. Uh, I was like, he should become COVID. And then like, she'll at least have a, a cough, maybe, or I don't know, anyways. Um, and then before I knew it, he was a germ. 
Yeah. I totally called this. I felt really proud of myself. That I was is, like, he's got to be so small that she can't, ha- she has no way to kill him. I was like, oh, a virus, COVID, yes. I was proud of myself. I think my childhood self imagined that particular scene in the movie being much longer than it is. And that may be why I enjoyed it. Like, I just, it definitely, that movie is made for children with short attention spans. It's just like, here's a short thing. Ah, here's a different short thing. Ah, here's a different short thing. And like, there are, it's a series of like short action sequences tied to get, not really tied together, just sort of short action sequences that happen in succession. Um, And you can like pick it up, pick it back up whenever you want. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely felt that way when Merlin and Arthur were on their way to like the castle where Arthur lives and there's that wolf chasing them. I was like, this is like every like Looney Tunes cartoon like this is a three minute Looney Tunes cartoon of a coyote or a wolf trying to chase something and constantly being foiled by characters who can't see it I mean, speaking of which uh our sponsor for today is the new Ben and Jerry movie Ben and Jerry Tom and Jerry Tom and Jerry <laughs> ice cream guys made a movie I was like I well I've never that. noticed they have the same names as the ice cream people they do not. All right. Well, we just lost all possible money from the Tom and Jerry franchise. Um, but the movie comes out. So- I would rather have Ben and Jerry money than Tom and Jerry money. Oh, yeah. It, it will be probably a lot more. I can't imagine the Tom and Jerry movie will go particularly well. They can pay me an ice cream and I'd be happy. They got good ice cream. Yeah. And good morals. And good morals. Um, I have no notes besides this movie is so boring to me. That's all I um, I, I really hated the squirrel scene. The squirrel romance thing was weird. At one point, Merlin says, there are no rules. He's talking about love. There are no rules. Anything goes. That's not true. That's not true. That's how really horrible things happen. Um, so horrible dating advice from Merlin. Um, the female squirrels got catfished by what they thought were male squirrels and turned out to be humans. Um, so I felt bad for that. Um, yeah, those are pretty much all my notes. One of my, my, my friend who loves this movie, uh, unironically, but also acknowledges he, he should not love it as much as he does. It's his favorite Disney film, um, but he acknowledges it is not anywhere close to the best Disney movie. Uh, and his favorite scene is what he calls the lusty squirrels scene. Um, and it's, I think it's because like in, in four minutes you go from being like, Oh, this squirrel's kind of cute to like, Oh my gosh, the squirrel is a little bit annoying. And then you go to like, Oh my gosh, these poor squirrels hearts have been totally broken. And like, you feel emotional for these squirrels and for at least, for at least five seconds of like, <laughs> when they get catfished, you're just like, Oh, they did not deserve that. Those poor squirrels. Yeah. I don't know. It just it like it is a very it is a complete uh, emotional journey that that you go on with these with these squirrels. That so would you say that the, that Disney endorses um, some forms of animal cruelty? I don't know if I'd call that animal cruelty. It was certainly animal farms in the making of the movie. It looks like they were. I mean, they certainly were emotionally. They should sue for emotional damages if nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't know. I think they're just they're just also cute <laughs> cute and cuddly squirrels um is partly why why my friend enjoys this this movie <laughs> but, 
You know who my favorite character was besides Archimedes the owl? It was the sugar pot. The sugar pot is an excellent. I really liked the sugar pot. Excellent character. Natalie, do you remember the sugar pot? I don't remember anything. It was the one that he like scooped sugar out of his head. Yeah. Um, his Merlin spell is prestidigitation, which is what we'll come back with in bed knobs and broomsticks. I said this reminds me of bed knobs and broomsticks. I said that to Joshua. Yes. Yep. Well, I think prestidigitation then is when you make inanimate objects move, maybe, or you bring them to life. Yeah, it's. I think that's the name of the spell. I only ever remember like yeah. the song that she sings with the spell, and then, like the Draconis uh, or Lacunus Dracorum, something say to Steve. Yeah. Yeah, and but I think that's, that's prestidigitation. Yeah. Which is just a fun word to say. I'm gonna to try to work it into my next sermon. Okay. Good. Good luck on that. The spirit, the Holy Spirit, brings things to life. Brings. Yeah, like I said, um, good luck on that. Speaking of favorite movies, I do think it is a good point to say, for us to say that like we're picking our favorite movies every episode, but we're also not saying it's the best Disney movie because I think Sarah sometimes gets annoyed with me for sticking with um lady and the tramp for so long or bambi bambi for so bambi. long no, I, I agree with you what me yeah with you with with natalie that yeah Nat, i mean bambi is but i would have stuck with bambi for most of the movies that y'all went through thank you yeah bambi is also just one of the most artistically beautiful disney movies like the the background scenes and and every frame of that movie are these like just impeccable watercolors and like the atmosphere like they, they go through the seasons and each season is like beautifully described and framed and painted um i don't know i just really it's a very i don't like the movie all that much but it is really really pretty to watch sorry that's entirely off topic well disney it's true yeah pretty on topic um more on topic than a lot of our researches um <laughs> Every week we choose our favorite movie um, based on, uh, of all the ones we've watched. Um, my favorite, what did we watch last week? Incredible Journey. Okay, no, it wasn't that. My favorite is, um... is, is yours Lady in the Trap? I think so. And yours is 101 Dalmatians? Yeah, mine is 101 Dalmatians. I think I might. I think I might take the parent trap. Oh, over Lady and the Tramp. I mean, they're very news to me. Okay, so my favorite is the Parent Trap, and Sarah says one hundred and one <laughs> Dalmatians. So, um, I think this is probably just another skip like we did last week, where we didn't bother to consider Incredible Journey. Um, I'm going to speak for both of us that we're not going to choose the Sword and the Stone over the parent shop and 101 Dalmatians. Um, but I do have, I am leaving this episode with a little more respect for it. Um, uh, thanks to this conversation. Um, Josh, do you want to tell us uh, both your favorite Disney movie and your favorite of the ones we've watched so far? Favorite Disney movie of all time is Lion King, the, uh, the original animated. Um, the remake is really good, but I think I still prefer the animated. 
uh, of the ones you've watched so far. I don't remember what what year are you in right now? 63? 63. The Reluctant Dragon. No, I've still never actually watched it. Everything, it's a good one. I liked it. Everything I know about it comes from y'all's podcast. Wait, y'all did Where Peter Pan? Peter Pan was 53. Yeah. Yeah. Are we the experts, though, then? We're your number one resource for uh, all things Disney movies before 1963. No, just for that one movie. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with I'm going to go with Sword in the Stone as my favorite up to this point. Sorry. I know. I know. I just, I really enjoyed it as a child. And I think that nostalgia factor uh, plays a big part in enjoying it now. And is there, um, I'm sure this has come up in conversation, but I couldn't name what they are, but is there, is there a movie that you've, that we haven't gotten to that you're excited for us to experience um, for the first time or as adults? Oh, uh, the Black Cauldron. I cannot wait to hear okay. y'all take on, y'all's take on the Black Cauldron. Yeah, I have no clue. I think that's the movie we thought we were talking about last week. Yeah. Um, I have no clue what that book's about or movie's about. Is it? <laughs> it's based on it's based on the second book in a series of children's novels uh, that are very much like Lord of the Rings for kids. Um, and <laughs> and it's I, 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 I'm doing the author a disservice because he does try and like use kind of more Welsh. Uh, mythology than <laughs> british mythology which they're kind of similar in a lot of ways but uh yeah no it's, it's lord of the rings for kids and the movie <laughs> itself is if you thought this movie was a bunch of short stories tied together by a very thin plot man do i have a surprise for you <laughs> oh, yay. you will you that. will probably hate the black cauldron uh but oh, i hope that How you long can is it? oh it's only like 88 minutes it is short um, but but I hope you can appreciate how fast it moves, how quickly you go from point to point. If you're just like, wait, we were just in a dungeon now. Oh oh, there's a new character. Oh that character's gone. Oh there's a new character. We're da- we're with fairies now. Oh now there's a cauldron. Also, it's scary. I'm a, it should. I'm a fan it, of it moving quickly. It should top the scary scale because the Horned wow. King is perhaps the scariest villain uh, up mm. to that point. Yeah. Speaking of scary scale, Natalie, do you have one for this movie? Uh, two, three. For what? The bad lady. Mad Madam Mim. Who has an excellent song, I have to say. Mm-hmm. I'd say a 0.5 for uh, tobacco use. Yeah. Scary. I'd add a 0.5 to mine just for the suspense of will he be able to pull that sword out of the stone? Will he ever find the sword in the stone? Because so far they haven't mentioned it. So I don't know if it's really on his list of things to do. Does he want to pull the sword out of the stone? I'd forgotten all about the sword in the stone and then we went up to Kay and he was like, I forgot my sword. And I was like, of course he did, idiot. And even still when he went back to get it and the end was closed, I was like, oh... This is where the sword and the stone comes um, in. <laughs> like yeah. this movie is so weird. With the heavenly spotlight shining down on it every time he steps yeah. up to the, <laughs> and then it goes yeah. away as soon as he steps away. I'd be like, nah, <laughs> step away from that. Like all of the all of the people who are like, we should try first. As soon as the boy steps up and heavenly music begins to play, you should be like, oh, never mind, it's him. But yeah. they were all a little little slow on the uptake there. Mm-hmm. 
Cool. What's our next movie, Natalie? Well, so I'll let you make this decision, Sarah. Um, the next like major movie is um, I think it's Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins. Um, yeah, but before Mary Poppins is the Three Lives of Thomasina. You really like that movie. Doesn't dad really like it? Yeah. You want to do it with dad? Sure. Ugh. It's based on the novel Thomasina, the cat who thought she was good. Oh, God. Oh, wow. What? I thought I said good, but it's God. That's interesting. Okay. I think you're now morally obligated to watch it. Yeah. As, as, as persons of faith doing ministry related work sin but um yeah we'll do Thomasina and then we'll do Mary Poppins yes okay yeah very excited about Mary the Julie Andrews one not the Emily Blunt one what the Julie Andrews one not Emily Blunt oh yeah I like the Emily Blunt one though me too um, um all right source- sources uh wikipedia myarmory.com is that it that's it uh, my sources are wikipedia as well but then um the mary ness article is from tor.com and um imdb and uh we both use josh as a source yeah. All right. Thanks, Josh, for being on the podcast. It's only a matter of time uh, that it happened. Um, Always happy to come back. Maybe maybe we'll have you back on for the Black Cauldron. Was that in like the 80s or 90s? Uh, I think it's 88. Hmm. Pretty sure it might be 87, but. Okay. Mom and Dad didn't care about taking me to movies then because I've never heard of it. It was incredibly unsuccessful. Good to know. Yeah. Cool. Well, we will see you. We'll be back here on the podcast waves next week with um, the three lives of Thomasina. This has been Wolf Disney. Thanks for listening. Our theme song is Lamb and Wolf by Poddington Bear. See you next week. Also, if y'all knew how much random historical context I just held back, it's still rocketing around my brain. <laughs> given given how much I me. already just morphed all over your podcast, um, there is so much more. It's bad. No worries. It's bad. Very bad.